Welcome to the InnerVoice.life podcast. InnerVoice.life, the voice of endurance sports. InnerVoice.life is a showcase of inspiring, moving, and authentic stories from the endurance sports world. We feature athletes who share their internal dialogue to give us a snapshot into their lives as athletes and most importantly, humans. I'm your host, Travis McKenzie. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for today's insight into the inner voice of the wonderful world of endurance sports. Now, today's episode is quite interesting. For the first time, we've had a special guest on that isn't a feature of ours, but a longtime friend of mine, David Ogle from Dose Performance Coaching, and he gives us an insight into the mental aspect of the sport, how the neurotransmitters affect your performance, and how you can think about accomplishment, fulfillment, and where sports plays in your life. Now, halfway through, we lost the audio and I had to do some MacGyvering to get it back. So you will hear a change in the audio. Stick with it. There's some gold in the final section. But I hope you enjoy today's episode with David Ogle from Dose Performance Coaching. Welcome to innervoice.life podcast number six, seven, ten. I don't know. I've lost count. Cody, Royal, how are you, my friend? I'm good, mate. How are you doing? Fantastic. Um, do you remember how many I've, of these we've done? I can't remember anymore. I think it's north of 100. <laughs> um, thanks to all our returning guests. Um, You've been with us since the start, all those years ago. More, uh, I think what? more shows than guests, <laughs> more shows than, uh, than listeners maybe. <laughs> I think so. What would happen if we just said this was episode 137 and just tried to trick people into the fact that we'd been doing this for years? That'd be very Australian of you, using trickery <laughs> as a tactic. I think that's like part of the national... Um, citizenship test maybe is like <laughs> testing levels of trickery. Can you eat Vegemite and can you use trickery to get your own way? Yeah. Well, perfectly. <laughs> We've set this up fantastically for what today will be a very, well, I guess a special edition of the innervoice.life podcast. Uh, we're recording in our well-equipped studio here in Vancouver. Cody's on the line from Toronto um, and we have an in-person guest for the first time. And also for the first time, we're not going to talk directly about a feature. We're going to tap into a little bit more around the psychology of performance um, and some more information around uh, how to perform differently, better uh, from a neuroscience standpoint. And I'd like to take this opportunity to welcome David Ogle, who's in the room. David, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Um, I mean, I had no idea until right now you'd 
done 137 of these. So it's <laughs> to be on such a time honored podcast is, is pretty meaningful. It doesn't show to you with the, <laughs> with the, uh, the setup we have in the office here um, that we haven't been doing this for quite a while. No, not at all. I, like I said, Trav, I thought I wa- was walking into Google's headquarters or Apple, you know, or yeah, 1-800-GOT-JUNK. Right. Just like the, the junk part. Yeah, <laughs> got it. <laughs> the garbage <laughs> disposal center. Well, uh, yeah, very kind. Thanks for, thanks yeah. for coming. <laughs> Good podcast. All yeah. right, we're done. Great episode, mate. Thank you. See yeah. you later. Um, so, Dave, why don't we kind of share a little bit about your background? Um, you and I have been working together for a little while now um, on a personal standpoint. Um, we used to also work together over at Lululemon. Um, and Dave sent over a bio to me, but I think what I'd rather do than read it out and give you the canned answer, I'd la- rather turn it over to Dave to tell us a little bit about himself, tell us a little bit about dose performance coaching um, and introduce yourself to our innervoice.life podcast listeners. I much prefer that approach rather than sitting here watching you read a bio about me. Um, I'm sure that'd be really enjoying for me. Enjoying, enjoyable. So yeah, uh, I'm David. I've known Trav for quite a while now. Uh, my my tenure at Lululemon was on the leadership development team. So. My career has been all things leadership development, coaching, organizational development. development. Um, really, if I were to boil it down, it's understanding the psychology of how teams work and understanding the role that leaders play and the role that team dynamic plays in creating performance or creating really great results, whether it's a business standpoint or with a team or even in individual sports. There's so many consistent themes across all of it. So for me, as, as I grew in, in my career and, and the things that I love to do, what I started to realize is there's a practice of coaching, uh, which that's a pretty big word. And I usually like to kind of pause there and say, there's all sorts of types of coaching. There's sports coaches, there's life coaches, there's nutrition coaches. And the, the type of coaching that I specifically do is what I call performance coaching. Uh, and that's really bringing in under the umbrella of performance uh, a few different factors. It's the practice of coaching. So exploring, working with someone, asking questions, and really kind of being that, that challenge of asking someone the question that maybe they don't or won't ask themselves. Um, and then the other two things that I bring into it is, is leadership. So who am I? What's the impact I have on the people around me? Bringing awareness to that and then understanding what's the contribution that I want to have. Uh, and then the, the third component, which is where I can geek out for hours, is the neuroscience of it all. Uh, the simplest way for me to put it is our mind is the thing, we're, the tool that we're using in everything we do, and yet it's the one tool we generally have the least understanding about. So I just I got really interested about five years ago in learning more about the mind, how it works, how it relates to performance how it relates to setting goals and habits and bias. Um, And I'm now finishing up my master's in cognitive neuroscience. And the the, the correlation between performance, leadership, and neuroscience is, it's really fascinating to me. Yeah. And I think for me, the fit in having you here today was real. I was really interested in, in that side of it. So the neuroscience side of it um, around performance, obviously the, the, 
our site is called Inner Voice. So we really tap into the inner voice of the athletes and have them share their story from their own voice, but also really encouraging them to tap into those mental aspects that they face, whether it's in everyday life, whether it's what they've, um, you know, their history and things they've encountered in their past, um, or particularly under pressure in performance. So, you know, I think there's a lot to be said in having you here to be able to share more of the neuroscience and the reality around why these things happen um, and then tie it back into the features that we have had in the past and really digging into why do some people race more successfully or compete more successfully from a place of joy and from a place of grateful or gratitude and being grateful. And some people perform a lot better from a place of anger and fear and this other side of the brain. So, you know, I think we can dig into a little bit more about that um, as we go through today. Uh, the other thing I'd love to talk about is, is the coaching aspect. I think a lot of athletes that read our features, um, you know, may be working with their own physical coach um, to plot their training and to give them that feedback, but might not necessarily have that, uh, you know, the much as many of those tools on the mental side. And endurance sports are very much a mental sport. Um, you and I have had a lot of banter over the years about our uh, sporting preferences, me being an endurance sport athlete, <laughs> you being a, uh, a CrossFit legend slash powerlifting slash strength athlete. Um, tell us a little bit more about your athletic background as well. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I, I was, as I was walking here today, I was thinking about that. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm the neuroscience and leadership guy who does Olympic weightlifting. He's going to go and talk with a bunch of triathletes. <laughs> Imposter syndrome uh, was maximized. But um, yeah, I, I grew up playing. I mean, like as a kid, I played, I played soccer, I played baseball, uh, and I got into lacrosse when I was in middle school. And lacrosse was my sport. So all through university and then after university, I, I played lacrosse. And then it was like a year, year and a half after university that I got into weightlifting. So again, broad term weightlifting within that there's powerlifting, there's bodybuilding, and, and there's a category that's Olympic weightlifting, which is the two lifts that are at the Olympics. It's the easiest way to remember it. Um, and so I got into that with some friends and just fell in love and, and loved and this is actually probably the correlation that's most interesting about what we'll talk about is I love the mental aspect of it. And, and there's a lot of similarities that I find in weightlifting, not only with some interesting crossover to yoga, but any uh, single athlete or individual athlete sport. So whether it's running or cycling, I guess cycling, you, you get a bit more team dynamic, but where it's me versus the elements rather than me trying to impede your, your actual performance as a competitor, it totally changes it. And the, the mind becomes the greatest aspect of that challenge. So it's, that's my background and, and I, love, I love that side of it. Yeah, I love the crossover. And Cody, um, I, this is the first time you and Dave have spoken, but um, so Cody wrote a book recently um, that was published and um, we have, I don't think we've spent a lot of time talking about it, but um, it's called Where Others Weren't, Taking People Innovation from the Locker Room into the Boardroom. And mm -hmm. I think you guys would really be able to jam out on that and um, we'll make sure we get a copy of the book to you because I think there's a lot of what Cody says in that book 
um, that would be very relatable into your world. So I'm sure you guys will be able to connect a lot more on that um, offline. The other thing that you mentioned, Cody, and we've heard this a million times before, is the imposter syndrome. We've heard from the world's best athletes that they would stand on the starting line and they would have imposter syndrome. So Simon Whitfield, who um, was an Olympic gold medalist for Canada, I've interviewed him many times and he has, um, he always says to me that he still to this day remembers how much he suffered from that. Mm. Here he is an Olympic gold medalist standing on the start line with someone and thinking, well, they look a lot fitter. They look a lot stronger. They've got better equipment, whatever. I think it's a, it's something that we see pop up a lot, Cody. Oh yeah. Over and over and over again. Um, and it's funny how it, it tends to stay with you. Um, so, you know, there's the, the top end guys, but also when you're young and up and coming, um, people tend to reflect on those memories where, you know, they got to race against their heroes or something like that. So obviously there's a little bit of imposter syndrome there, but, you know, like a Simon kind of example, when you're the world's best, that, that element stays with you. Um, is there something to that is, is the question that I'd be interested to from a, a neuroscience perspective. Like, like what is that? What are we talking about when we talk about imposter syndrome? What's, what's being fired off in the brain and, and the, the chemical mix that's going on there? <laughs> uh, I don't know if I can give you the chemical mix, but I, I've, I've got a little insight. Um, and it's interesting that we're, we're talking imposter syndrome as it relates to sport, because you know, when I, we'll start to work with a client or talk to people about what I do. So I work with a lot of CEOs and then uh, some professional athletes as well. And the interesting uh, consistency amongst everyone I work with is imposter syndrome is there. So there's this weird correlation between sport and business where people are dealing with literally the same experience, just in different settings, which then causes me to say there's something about human condition that creates imposter syndrome and, and one of the pieces that, that really fuels it is uh, if we look at how our brain is designed, it's designed to keep us safe. And thousands of years ago, safety was a very physical thing. Like, I don't want to get eaten by a saber-toothed tiger. Yeah. Like, you guys have heard all those examples of the primitive brain and caveman thinking and all that and designed to keep us physically safe. And then as we've evolved as a species, we're... we're almost entirely socially motivated and related. So like they've done studies before the age of 14, we don't learn anything in a non-social capacity. So if you think about that, like from age zero to 14, everything you learn is social. So it's ingrained in you that the social connection and the social world around you is your reality. So then you, you elevate that to being a high level athlete or, or just any athlete or being a CEO or in the business world, you're in a social construct and everything you're experiencing is social. Mm. So because of that social relationship, I then start to look at, well, who are the other people around me and what is their social capacity? And I, I choose capacity intentionally because status, though it plays a role, isn't the exclusive thing. Um, and then because of that, my brain is, it's built to keep me safe. So now instead of keeping me physically safe, it's trying to keep me socially safe. Mm. So I love the example, it was Simon. Yeah. So like Simon's on the starting line and he looks at another guy and physically he, he's biased to pick out all the things that are good about that person 
Because then if I at least see it coming, I can defend myself. Like yeah. It's a very primal uh, defense mechanism of, okay, like I know Trav is taller than me, so he's going to have more reach. So when we fight, I got to go for his knees. I can think about that you every would. time. Yeah, you would. I, sneaky. Yeah, he's sneaky. Sand in the eyes. <laughs> <laughs> You're a great Australian, right? Trickery. <laughs> Trickery. Um, but there's a very, like, it's a social thing that's happening is – I also start to look at you and like, well, who's Trav in the world and, and who am I? Because I know my story, it seems normal. Mm. Like what I eat for breakfast is not remarkable to me. And yet I could tell you what I eat for breakfast and think, oh my gosh, you eat five eggs? That's profound. You eat five eggs? I, I do eat five eggs. Well, yeah. I eat four, four egg whites and, and one egg. Got it. That is, that is remarkable. <laughs> yeah, of course. You're like a twig. <laughs> but the, like, that's, that's actually a really simple example of it's nearly impossible for me to conceive of my story as profound. But then I look at someone else's and I don't have the everyday context. So then I start to make it something bigger than it is, which then causes me to feel a need for security or safety and defend against that. That dichotomy, I would say, like, that's imposter syndrome because yeah. I'm now seeing who someone is and not actually stopping to see that I'm that as well. So, the world's best suffer from it. You, as someone who is very well aware and attuned to your mental state, suffers from it. There must be some element of it, it serving us, or there would be no reason for us to continue to use that. Is there a way that that can be? of service to us. Mm, yeah, that's the trick. So in one hand, it doesn't serve us. Like, and that's, you can read the millions of self-help. This why self-help is an industry. Mm. Think of it like Tony Robbins' whole shtick. is like, see who you are, see what you want, and go get it. Yeah. And, it, and it's breaking that barrier and all these, uh, they're called dang, negative automatic thoughts. Like something happens and I have instantly a negative automatic thought. And where it becomes dangerous is when those negative automatic thoughts, they're called NATs, so I don't have to keep saying that. Yeah. When those NATs start to get a lot of clout and start to drive my action rather than being, it pops up and I dismiss it. So how do I build the tools to actually bring awareness of, oh, that's just an NAT and I'm choosing to still do this. Um, so the first answer to your question is they don't serve us. It's kind of the excuse me, the, the crux of what holds people back in life. Um, and the, the flip side is, I'm sure there's, you know, one of your millions of hardcore adventure skiers that listen to this podcast that would be like, what's this guy talking about? But it does serve to keep us safe because it, it causes me to pause and not immediately think, oh, I can do that. Mm. 30 foot rock, I can jump off that. Sure. In that sense, I'm on a 30-foot rock and immediately my brain's job is to keep me safe. And it says, can I do that? Should I do that? Um, but it's when they become, like, to use a psychological term, maladaptive. So they start to run or drive my thinking rather than being something that pops up and I observe and, and kind of negotiate with. Yeah. So that's why I think mindfulness has become such a catchy thing these days is how do I relate to the NATs as they pop up? Yeah, and I think um, that's an interesting point that you bring up because I think that is 
exactly what happens in endurance sports. When you get to a certain point in an event or in a race or a competition and those negative automatic thoughts start to creep in, the best in the world are able to put those aside or trans, um, transfer them or do whatever they need to do to get rid of those. Mm-hmm. Whereas the people who are not as accomplished in the sport or maybe haven't had the training for the mental um, tools and develop those tools and sharpen them well enough, succumb to that. So I didn't do enough training. I'm not good enough. Um, I should have, you know, had extra sleep or I shouldn't have ridden so hard on the bike or did, did it, the list and list goes on. And um, it is exactly what slows people down and stops people in those races because physically there's no reason why you should stop. As long as you've, you know, maintained your nutrition, there's no reason why at an aerobic level you shouldn't be able to continue. Yeah, well, it's, it's spot on. It's, um, I, I, there's three pillars that I think we look at as, as athletes is, you know, my physical health, uh, my, my nutritional health, which it relates to physical health. And I think people really distinguish there. Um, and then the third one, it, people get it and they don't really focus on it in the same capacity insofar as I found is my mental health. Yeah. Which is funny because when I say mental health, most people immediately think mental illness mm. or mental ill health. But as an athlete, what am I doing to train my physical health? What am I doing to train my nutritional health? And what am I doing to train my mental health? Because my mental health is that capacity to overcome adversity because my tire popping when I'm on the course is not my physical health. It's not my nutritional health it's a thing that happens and whether or not I overcome it or bomb the race, it's purely a mental negotiation that's going on in my brain. Yeah. Cody, I think the interesting thing there to me is it's a lot harder to train your mental health in that example. So you're never really in training going to put yourself in a position where you have to really test yourself at that level that you would in a race you can simulate workouts you can push yourself and part of it is getting up day after day session after session and and keep answering the bell that builds that level of mental capacity and mental health but it's not until you're 30 kilometers into the marathon in an ironman or heading into the last climb of a road race in cycling that all of a sudden that is actually happening to you and it's no longer a simulation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it's funny because there's to tie together a lot of the things that we've been talking about here. Um, you know, I've, I wrote in my book, um, there's three chapters on performance and one of them was on how the San Antonio Spurs would simulate their free throws and um, they became the best free throw team in the league by basically going through mental practice and putting themselves into situations of not mental trauma, but as simulated as possible um, for real life, you know, 40,000 people in the stadium trying to put them off. Um, And maybe, you know, um, uh, individual sports need to get to that point. Um, to start to, to train themselves. Like maybe you need to come off the bike or simulate something similar or um, to put yourself into those situations because they're the real life things that are going to um, 
impact you on race day. Um, well, I, my I think the world's best do it. Like I think the people that yeah. you can think of that are, you know, the names of names in, in certain sports are the ones that have developed that capacity over time through, through that competition element, but they also have worked tirelessly out of competition and put as much emphasis on that as they have the physical health and the nutritional health and all of those other things they need to take care of. Yeah. Um, so I think that, you know, that's a, if anything, you know, to add value to the listener here and for them to take something away, it's like, how do you safely put yourself in a position where you're able to test yourself and develop those tools? So there's, there's two things I'll share. Uh, and Cody, cause you brought up free throws and there's a, a a study I use all the time because it's, I think it's fascinating. And then the, the second piece is kind of to answer your question, Trav. But the, so the Gallup organization did a study on free throws and they just took random people. So no prior basketball experience or anything. And they divided them into three groups and all three groups went in and tested their free throws. I think they shot like 25 or 30 free throws. And then they had one month, so 30 days, and a group one did nothing. They didn't touch a basketball. They didn't think about basketball. They just continued on their normal life. And when they came, that group came in and, and tested their free throws, they were about the same, like within one free throw of what they did before, which makes sense. If you do nothing, you're probably not going to get any better. Yeah. Uh, then the second group practiced 25 free throws every single day. So they went and they shot the exact same amount every single day. And when they came back in and tested – they had around a 50% increase, which is great. We think of a 50% increase on your bike time or your swim time, which for me would be like three hours. <laughs> like, <laughs> I need floatings when I'm in the water. Um, and then the third group is, I just got visions of me almost drowning Drown. in my first trial. We don't want to have that happen. Yeah, it's bad. Um, but the third group, did the free throws and then for their month they didn't touch a basketball and they didn't go onto a basketball court but they meditated for the time that it would take someone to shoot about 25 free throws so was, i think it ended up being like four or five minutes they they it was more of a visualization actually but they yeah. visualized shooting the free throws in that exact space doing the motion and when they came in and tested again after 30 days they had a 50 percent increase so what it shows is, you know, not that you can meditate and be better than if you physically train, yeah. but it shows the balance that you can meditate or, or take care of that mental game. And it's just as important as the physical game. So it's oftentimes we see it as a, and, or, or like, do I train this one? Or how do I train this one? I've got to do both. Yeah. Um, and then to your question, Travis, like, how do you do it? And like, that's why I have a job. Yeah. It, like I really believe coaching like the role of a coach is to challenge you physically and to challenge you mentally in a capacity that you actually can't push yourself. So a coach is going to create, create a better physical training program for you than you can for yourself because you're not going to be honest with yourself. Yeah. And a great coach is going to do the same thing mentally. I, so I coach weightlifting and we have a few national level weightlifting athletes at our gym. And the thing I'm most proud of is, our athletes have the most consistent competitions of any weightlifting team in BC. Mm. And, and it's not because they're better lifters. They're, they're not. Hopefully they don't listen to this and hear that. But like, I actually think they're the most mentally strong lifters because we really work on 
being aware of where you are and where you need to be and, and bringing the mental game. Yeah, I, th I think that's really interesting because I'm thinking now myself around the people that I admire most in sport and it's the people who are consistent over a long period of time. The ones that are able to show up on the big days and perform at a level that is um, is world class, but it's on a consistent basis. It's not you know one one and done kind of thing. Um, so I think that's and I agree. I think like in endurance sports, like there's not a lot of capacity to put yourself in a position where you have to mentally challenge yourself because of the physical toll of that would be mm -hmm. too difficult. So using those tools of visualization and meditation and connection to the effort and connection to the technique and watching yourself perform at that level, I think is hugely valuable and definitely underrated and underused. Oh, absolutely. And to go a completely different direction with that, because it's popping up for me, I think it's interesting. That's also the risk is it can become so consuming that mm. like think of, Think of something like an Ironman. Like it takes so much focus and time that, you know, I, I remember the first Ironman I met and it was a lady down in Seattle. She's like, yeah, they, they call it divorce prep. Yeah. It's like, what do you mean? She's like, basically, if you do an Ironman, you'll get a divorce, which like, hopefully that's not actually true. But I see like just the amount of time and focus. So I think that the key word here is focus is I can also over-focus. So yeah. I'm, I'm focused on my physical training. I'm focused on my diet and nutrition. And I'm focused on the mental game. When does my, like my brain is on in all three of those categories. So when does my brain actually relax? Yeah. And, and a lot of studies that are starting to come out around mindfulness and meditation and thoughtfulness is what's the balance of focused meditation with like, so tuning in with tuning out, mm. you know, so think of, the notion of play or like the best examples, laying in a hammock and staring at the clouds. That's actually just as important for your mind. It's like a rest day for your body. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. So I remember when I was racing and, and training a lot of times um, that meditation for me was when I was actually training. So whether it was an easy run or mm. you've got a long ride where you're out in the countryside and there's no one else around, that was a moment to tune out. So like, instead of being in um, extremely focused in that moment in every training session, it was actually a chance to do some really solid thinking and like just thought, and I shouldn't say solid thinking, just like letting thoughts come mm. and go and just feeling that freedom of just moving. Yeah. For me was a big thing. That's it. I'm glad you say that because I think it's a skill that a lot of people don't even think about. Like if it happens, great, but you know, and that's when it's like, oh, I had this run and it was so good. What was good about it? I like, I just, I let go of all these things. And we can be, actually be intentional with that. Okay, on this run, I'm not going to focus on, you know, time or anything. Like, I'm actually, I might go slower today and I'm actually going to let my mind wander because that's what I need to do. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think there's enough of that. And that, that kind of leads me into the next thought, Cody, and you and I have talked about this before. Um, is around endorphins and around that chemical change in your system that, that comes through endurance sports. And I think that's something that people strive for and crave and become addicted to. Um, and I, I haven't spent a lot of time in you know weightlifting or in the gym since I was a kid, but I wouldn't imagine that that... Uh, I imagine there's a different chemical reaction that occurs through that sport 
as opposed to what we, um, you know, could traditionally refer as the runner's high. Can mm-hmm. you give us a little bit of an insight into, into that? Yeah. So it's neurotransmitters in general are, are a very tricky thing. So the, the generic thing that you'll see all over the internet, and this is like, I guess the pause is I'm really passionate about responsibly sharing neuroscience. It's easy to make these generic blanket statements of, if you eat grapes, you'll live 10% longer. Like you had it first, everybody <laughs> eat grapes. Eat grapes. And it's like, yeah, they tested that on like five worms and it made a worm whose three day lifespan lasts to three and a half days. So yeah, maybe that works for humans. So there's a lot of faulty research. Got it. Um, and so like what, why I bring that up is everyone knows what dopamine is and everyone knows dopamine is the reward thing. Like whether you call it a reward drug or, neurotransmitter but you know it's the, the goal in life is to maximize your dopamine which the irony of that is if you look at mental health like especially mental illness people who have psychotic schizophrenic or bipolar episodes part of that is because it's an overabundance of dopamine mm. in the brain so we start to look at them as generally good or bad and they're neurotransmitters so they are things, chemicals that help neuronal transmissions happen in the brain. So with that, when we look at things like endorphins, adrenaline, and dopamine, and those are probably the three that are most useful to consider, all three of those have totally different functions in the brain and a variety of functions. Dopamine is the most prevalent neurotransmitter in the brain, and it does play a significant role in reward, which is really important to what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, Endorphins, they're so basically when you think of um, opiates, opiates are designed to recreate what endorphins do in the body. So that runner's high, that tingly sensation, everything feels good, and then two hours later your body feels like it got hit by a truck, it's because the endorphins are gone. Got it. So endorphins help mask kind of the sensitivity of my nerves. Um, And in a long endurance-based sport, you can see how continuous release of endorphins over a long period of time is going to create that runner's high. Yeah. And there's drugs, like bad drugs, that simulate that. I guess you could say opiates or, or bad drugs, depending on your opinions. Um, we won't get into that today. Yeah, that's another podcast <laughs> <Yeah>. altogether. <laughs> Narrowly skirted that <laughs> issue. Uh, so, and, and adrenaline is much the same thing. Like, on one hand, adrenaline regulates some really important parts of my body, like, you know, some heart functions and lung functions and some of the automatic things that your body just does that without adrenaline, it just wouldn't happen. Yeah. And it's also, you know, the quote unquote fight or flight neurotransmitter of when it's game time or that last kilometer and it's your neck and neck and you're running, honestly, the person who gets the better adrenaline boost might win, not the better athlete. Interesting. You know, so And then it brings us back to dopamine because I actually think what we're talking about of like the mental game, it's understanding that one of the most base closest to scientific truths that that have been found is we're reward motivated and punishment motivated and and usually like motivated to not receive punishment. And so when you talk about like some people experience joy and gratitude and that drives them or some people experience fear or like loathing of something and that drives them. Yeah. 
there's a dopamine release related to that. As mentioned, the first part of today's episode was really interesting. I love the insight Dave is able to provide, not only from an athlete standpoint, a performance coach standpoint, but as an observer. As mentioned earlier, the second part of the interview, there's a lot of value, although the audio isn't the best. So please stick with it. If not, I understand, but please give it a shot. what is the reward or punishment that I can channel in, in my athletic pursuits? Because if I experience reward, I experience a, a mix of neurotransmitter release and therefore I feel good or I, I have an experience of it and then I want to keep doing it. One, one thing that um, we've seen come up recently and Trevor mentioned this earlier, so rarely gets talked about in either business or sport on a team basis or an individual basis is anger. Um, and so to, to clue into kind of what we're talking about here, I'd love your thoughts on like what does anger do to you? How how do people harness anger and maybe rechannel it for a good pursuit? Because it's so often thought about as we should never uh, feel it and we should be ashamed of ourselves if we do get angry. Yeah. What are your thoughts on anger, both as a life um, thing, but also as a, you know something that can be utilised in a marathon or an Ironman race? Oh man, it's a really good question, and I think that there's two different ways to approach it, and you're setting it up really well, like a life thing, and then in the moment in the race. Um, so I, I guess the the foundation for us to look at is emotions are not a primary thing. So I don't just experience happiness. Events happen and emotions are a reaction to that. I can't spontaneously create happiness. I can think of experiences or thoughts that make me happy and therefore feel happy, but emotion takes stimulus. Mm. Which is, that's really important because if I think of emotion as a thing in itself without any sort of causal relationship, I lose that I actually need something to, to instigate it. Um, in the middle of that is a whole field of psychology around what they call schema or beliefs, um, that the things that I believe to be true in the world. So someone could walk into this room right now and bring coffee, and because I have a belief that coffee is a wonderful thing, I'll feel happiness or I think that person's really nice. But Trav, being an Australian, maybe like, oh my God, Australian coffee is so much better. <laughs> so why are they bringing this crap water in here? He, like he could actually feel anger to the exact same thing. So our, our beliefs shape how we interpret, interpret the stimuli that cause the emotion. Um, at a high level, and, and this is just something I'm, I'm passionate about, I don't believe any sort of uh, maladaptive behavior around emotion of, in order to succeed, I need to feel anger or spike. I was, I was talking to a guy in CrossFit and I was like, he just, he trains so hard and then he's always bombed in competition. I'm like, okay, something's going on in the mental game. I was like, I just asked him, I was like, are you happy? I was like, happy? 
I think it's for weak people, mm. like in stereotyping CrossFit so well right now. Perfect. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he's like, I am fueled on spite and rage of my past. All right, like, how's that working out for you? Yeah. But it's, uh, I, I think I can get some short-term gains. And, and the bigger question from a life perspective is, if anger is what's fueling my performance, do I have a long-term sustainable plan around performance or am I going to crash at some point? Like how long can I really be fueled by anger and take a fulfilling meaning and, and feel happy? So that's, that's the, the big picture. And then I guess to the specific, can I be effective? Yeah, because really emotions, emotions are a construct of my mind, whether I feel gratitude, joy, or anger, as long as I'm feeling an emotional connection, I have an inherent different drive. So um, something I do a lot of research around is insight. And, and there's two different ways that we learn. Like we can learn in a very, uh, think of math, like categorical, very uh, structured, like one plus one is two. It's, it's not this like huge realization versus there's insight where oftentimes what we find with insight is there's an emotional connection to it. I'm trying to think of something, oh, right, it's this connection and I feel something. So, and it goes back to the social piece of, as a social creature, there are things that I have, have an emotional charge and things that don't. The predominant research is showing that things with an emotional charge have a significantly higher level of performance. So it's like when you talk goals, yeah, uh, goals with an emotional charge, I'm more likely to complete. Um, when I'm doing work and I have an emotional investment in it, when I'm in a relationship and there's an emotional connection, it's more likely to be successful or do something versus my taxes. I don't really have an emotional connection and I keep putting them off. Yeah. So when we look at performance from an athletic perspective, I think the important virtue is, is there an emotional connection for me or is it just a thing that I'm doing? Yeah, I think, um, one thing that I thought of when you're saying that is like there is space for it to be just a thing, like because I think if similar to your point of like when do you get a chance for your brain to relax or shut off, like when do you get a chance to that emotion and attachment and like never-ending drive towards a goal become too much? Like, can you just do something for the sake of doing it in the short term, knowing that long term your success is going to be related to that emotional attachment to it, but like. It's okay just to do yeah. every now and again. Oh, absolutely. I mean, cause the, the emotion is, it's the feeling that I'm putting on something. It's not inherent to that experience. And what you just said, I think, sums it up so nicely. If when I think long-term and ask myself, what does success look like? Great, maybe it's winning Ironman Kona. And if that's success and I'm feeling that all through anger, I just, I don't see a world where I have that successful moment fueled by anger and it doesn't feel weird. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I think like probably the most famous example of, of this that I can think of is Lance Armstrong. So classically has written about how he was fueled by anger throughout his early part of his career. And I was listening to, uh, to his podcast last night and he mentioned about when, um, he would finish the Tour de France and then, you know, they ride on the Champs-Élysées and he's won the Tour de France again. He would go into the team bus and he would just sit on his own. He's like, let's get out of here. Like, duh, it's over. 
and it's no longer. So I wonder if that had anything to do with the fact that there was like obviously he put in the work and the process and did what he did, and this is you know obviously overlooking everything else that he did. But <laughs> at the end of the day, um, there was still a human element and a human side to that. Where if he was in fact racing on anger and fueled by that rage, then maybe the result was not as joyful as could be proclaimed or thought of. If he were really honest, it would be so interesting to ask him, like, were you fulfilled by all of that? Or did you just feel accomplished? And I'm like, I, yeah, it's such an interesting thought because everything that I've heard and read, and I don't, I can't put words in his mouth, obviously, but it seems like it's actually the, just the accomplishment. It's a, there was zero fulfillment. Yeah. And that's my observation. Well, it's, it's, I, I have lots of experiences with current clients in, in more of like a business sense, even around, you know, I, I was actually working with a guy earlier who makes less money now than he did before and couldn't be happier. So it's, it, it gets into that paradigm of once I really looking at, really look at what is success and, and defining it in terms of how I want to feel rather than the accomplishments I want to have, I do fundamentally different things and I make fundamentally different choices, which then brings us back to Lance. If Lance weren't fueled by rage, maybe he would make different choices and maybe he wouldn't have been as accomplished as he was or maybe more accomplished. Like, it's easy to be armchair quarterbacks in this, but yeah, totally. it's, it's really like interesting philosophical question. Yeah, I think there's also more to that, like the, and this can be for another time, but like that whole question around uh, doping and cheating and like going to that level, um, you know, for me is like, what makes someone decide to step over that line? Mm. And I don't, I don't think we can answer it now, but maybe we'll save it for next time. But that's, and also to me is an interesting thought is like, um, and I think an excuse of everyone else is doing it isn't good enough. Like there, there has to be some kind of an element of personal responsibility and personal choice that goes into that decision. And um, yeah, that's, it's always intrigued me of like having never ever been good enough to have to make that decision. For myself, which I'm thankful for. Totally, like grateful that I never had to do that. I never had to go to that, you know, I wasn't at that level where I had to make a choice whether that was going to be a career or not for me. Um, yeah. And Cody, I, I imagine you have something to add. One story I'll share, and it's not about doping, but there was an athlete I was working with right after the Rio Olympics. And, and he was so stuck on how do I get more sponsors and how do I keep the sponsors I have? And this was just this, this huge dilemma that like consumed him night and day and kept looking at like, what was that? He was sleeping, all these things about it. And eventually we, we hit this point where he realized that wasn't the question. The, the question was, did he want to train for another year's for the next quad to go to the next Olympics? Yeah. And the answer was no. And at that moment, he's like, Oh, I don't even care about the sponsors. But he was so stuck on walking out of the Olympics and it was assumed that he needed to do the next Olympics that he felt constrained into answering a very specific question. And, and I wonder if there's a psychological relevancy there 
to what someone who's making that doping decision is making of they, they lose sight of something bigger for them and get really focused on, well, obviously I need to be the best. Yeah. And therefore it's a, a yes or no decision and I feel forced to say yes. Yeah. yeah. That's what I was going to add there was really, I think we're going down a little bit of a rabbit hole with this uh, unintentionally, but that, that success element, so going back to what you were saying, Trav, is, where is that line? And um, it would be really, really interesting to explore where people see that line being. So, you know, we're talking about doping as as like as one singular line, but the reality is there's a million different lines leading up to that. Um, you know, to the point where caffeine can be considered a drug that enhances performance, and then you start to like think about all the things that stack up to. The, the big drugs like EPO and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, it would be really interesting to assess where people see those lines being and, and what their definition of success is that they're pursuing. Because I see it all the time you know, as, a, as a writer professionally, going back to a professional example, um, where writing denigrated itself to the point where people were chasing clicks and hits um, because they were seen as being of value and then you know so everyone started chasing that it's really no different to uh, an insurance sports athlete chasing whether it's a time or a place in Kona or winning Kona or a trophy, whatever it is whatever that goal is it really comes down to your definition of success and then reverse engineering that and seeing what wins going to go to so yeah I'd be really interested not just in the side of that, but basically people chasing goals in life. And, uh, and yeah. I, yeah, Cody, I'm really glad you said that because it brings us back to that fundamental neuroscience principle of we're reward motivated and punishment unmotivated and motivated to avoid punishment. It's like whether it's journalism, writing, riding a bike, like all these things. I'm motivated by whatever I deem as a reward and taking the time to have the mental fitness to define what a reward is for me is so important. Otherwise I get lost on that rabbit trail of, oh, now I'm, now I'm doing drugs, you know? And, and there's so many studies of, given the, the paradox of changing my actions or changing my beliefs, as a human, I will change my beliefs before I change my actions. Yeah. So it's like the classic example is like, Chad, do you, do you believe stealing is wrong? Of course. Yeah, of course, right? But you're starving, your daughter is starving, and if you don't steal that loaf of bread, she'll starve. Is stealing wrong? Yeah. It's, it's, right? Like, yeah. Like, and sorry to put you in that position. <laughs> I'm gonna steal the bread. <laughs> I wanna feed my daughter. The bread is being stolen. Yeah, right? It's like, and it's such a dramatic, simple example, but we do that every single day. We have these overarching beliefs, but then, oh, but that, I would have to change my action there? No, 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 I don't change my action. So I still believe this, except for these, all these exceptions. So yeah, the belief is fundamentally different. Yeah, and I think that's like the whole thing about the justification piece of like why people did a certain thing, you know? 
um, back to the dopamine thing, like just everyone else is doing it. So that's the so my belief now is that I wouldn't be able to progress without doing that. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's super interesting. Um, Dave, what's one last little tip or tidbit that you can give our listener um, who's potentially an endurance sports fanatic? What's one thing that they can take away um, within the performance coaching realm um, that might help them on a day-to-day basis or getting closer to those goals that they've set themselves? Uh, okay, let's, let's see if I can do this concisely. To me, it's like the one of the physical training principles I think is so valuable is if I'm a weightlifter, it's so important that I'm doing the opposite of weightlifting, which is stretching. Otherwise, I become so tight that I actually can no longer do my sport. So it's like, what are the things and activities that balance me physically that allow me to continue to perform at a high level and applying that principle on a mental level? So I may be the best mental athlete at focusing and grinding away, which looking at some of the triathletes I know, they are. Like they're just so determined and driven. Like, great, what's the opposite end of that spectrum? And how do you build that in to your life and your training so that you have that, that full balance? Um, otherwise, you're standing on a very narrow foundation that long-term is going to have implications. Love it. Do more of the things you're avoiding. <laughs> yeah, I should have just said that. Yeah, no, <laughs> that's why I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> Cody, this has been pretty fun, right? Having uh, another guest, so it's not just me and you trying to banter back and forth. <laughs> well, we got some banter in there as well, so we've we've ticked all the boxes. <laughs> all the boxes, um, Dave. How can people get in touch with you? Um, how can they follow along with your journey? Yeah, so my company is Dose Performance Coaching. Um, whether it's Instagram, Facebook, or the World Wide Web. Uh, Dose Coaching is where you'll find me, um, and there's ways to reach out to me and ask questions. I'm, I'm always keen to continue these types of conversations with people. Um, it's, it's my jam. Love it. Well, I think it's uh, it's been great to have you today, and I look forward to maybe bringing you back again in the near future, and we can chat more about other parts of the sport um, and other mental aspects and other ways that uh, our listener can get the best out of themselves and maybe there's a chance we can connect you with some of our athletes that we're featured and, um, and have a conversation there and really dig into what fuels them. That'd be a blast. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Guys. Yeah, of course. And, uh, as always, if you guys have got tips, thoughts, questions, let us know stories at innervoice.life and we look forward to speaking to you again very shortly and, uh, all the best. Thank you so much for listening. We really love the opportunity to bring you the most inspiring stories from the world of endurance sports. Please make sure you don't miss a feature. Head to innervoice.life and subscribe. Also, stay tuned to this podcast as we bring you more great content and special guests over the coming weeks and months. Subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcast and make sure you share with your friends and loved ones. 
We look forward to sharing more inspiration from innervoice.life, the voice of endurance sports. Thank you.